Yeah, no, I turned 30 this year, so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about it. See, I feel that my 30s are going to be when I truly thrive. Okay. <laughs> because, I mean, okay, so 20s, like, college stress, I got through that, okay, now I have to, like, figure out how to be an adult and be broke for a while and, <laughs> like, work all this, like, life stuff out and everything, but... You know, in my head, when I hit 30, it's just going to be my time. That's going to be, like, my decade. Like, that's when it's going to be all, like, coming together. And so I'm just, I'm ready to embrace 30. I'm still, I have a birthday in two weeks, so I'm still, uh, I'll be 25. So I'm still a good okay. But, yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I think 30s are, like, they sound like they're going to be awesome. Well, you still have half of your 20s to make your 20s pop in that's true and we're working on that you know and i'm looking back at my 20s like did i do enough and now i'm looking into my 30s like all right i'm gonna get some shit done in my 30s Hello and welcome to the Edge of Punks podcast. I'm your host, Craig Biedemann. This is your podcast for everyday educators and daily disruptors in the world of education. Today I am talking with my friend, Dylan Nettles, a friend I have never met in human form, but was the first person suggested to me outside of folks that I had already been looking into uh, interviewing and talking with uh, when I first put out the pitch that I was going to do this podcast. So I was really glad that I got to have this conversation with him. Uh, this week. It is a very timely conversation given um, the just simply frustrating and horrid images we saw in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia over the weekend. I was in Montreal over the weekend, which was very interesting because there was hardly any coverage. There was actually no coverage in Montreal over what was going on in America, whereas on social media, it was everywhere and everything um, that I could see. So it was really my first experience um, abroad uh, while something in America is going down. And so we get into that a little bit in this conversation uh, in the last segment. Actually, we save it for the last segment uh, because we get to a lot of really good stuff before that. We talk a lot about how segregation still exists in schools today in 2017 and how he and his organization, the Montgomery, the Montgomery Education Foundation, are doing great work to try and fight some system, systemic racist uh, systems that are keeping students behind from succeeding. And so that's a really great conversation. I'm really excited for you all to hear it. Um, But before that, just got a plug uh, to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at EduPunksPod. Share, rate, review, tell your friends about this podcast if this is your first time listening. Hey, what's up? I'm Craig. 
Uh, if you don't know me, I work at UMass Boston here in Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm a health education and wellness promotion specialist. So this is a little bit outside of my job, just a fun little thing I do on the side to get to talk to some educators because I'm, I'm a little selfish. I want to, I want to talk to friends. I want to talk to my colleagues who I think are really great and doing really powerful work. And I want to give them, uh, an avenue to get their voice heard, um, beyond just typical rabble all over social media. So this is a fun hour-long conversation um, as human beings in this world of education, humanizing it a little bit, if you will. And I'm excited because this week you get to hear music from This Patch of Sky, who are putting out a brand new album on September 22nd called These Small Spaces. It's going to be released by Equal Vision Records and Graphic Nature Records, and it is sure to be one of the albums of the year this year, especially in instrumental music. I'm excited to see them this October at Dunkfest with a bunch of other post-rock bands. And if you want more information on that, just check the show notes. But now let's get to the conversation with Dylan Nettles. So I am sitting digitally with my friend Dylan Nettles, who is uh, down in Alabama, right? Very much in Alabama. Very much in Alabama. I have Very never much. been to Alabama. Mm, you should come visit. It's definitely an interesting place. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say it's interesting? <laughs> Alabama, I mean, you know, every everyone's very aware that we have quite the history. Um but you know, people here have overcome a lot, and I think that that shows up when you you interact and and meet people here. I think you see that you know people here are are really strong, um, but also a lot more open. Um, and um, and I don't know. I mean, they're just a really open, communal, and um, way more accepting than I think the the stigmas and stuff that we we get labeled with a lot. Uh, give us credit for so cool well um i'm excited to hear a little bit more about that as you tell folks a little bit about yourself i i've learned a little bit about you but i'd love to hear uh a little bit more tell tell the folks who you are um well yeah as you said my name's dylan um let's see uh, a little bit about myself um well i'm very black i know that your (laughs) listeners can't see me (laughs) (laughs) um I'm very Southern, very much in Alabama. Um, and I've actually, I've grown up in Alabama my entire life. Um, I was born and raised uh, right outside of Mobile, which is at the Southern tip of the um, of the state. I grew up in um, a town called Daphne, Alabama. Uh, it's a little suburban, I call it like a soccer mom town <laughs> outside of Mobile. Um, and, uh, yeah, grew up there, was raised there by my, uh, single mom. Um, and I have one younger brother, so she raised us both, worked all the time, <laughs> uh, to make that happen. And, you know, I, I think it was fortunate, though, to grow up there. And, like I said, I have a, a slightly different take on the state of Alabama than a lot of people. So I, I do have a pride coming from, from here, um, even given what I know a lot of people think about it, um. Let's see, what else? Uh, I love music. I know your show is a big fan of music, so I'm sure your listeners are too. Um, I love trash reality television from time to time. 
uh, with a healthy balance of, you know, politics and news. Uh, I love Beyonce, <laughs> but who doesn't? <laughs> and, and yeah, I'll, I'll, have a job. I'll have an actual real world job as well. That's what's important. Um, oh, yeah. What do you do for a living? That's a good reason to uh, bring you on. <laughs> I am the community programs director for the Montgomery Education Foundation. There you go. <laughs> We're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, now, being raised by a single mother, was education like a big priority in your household? That's a great question. Um, I, I, I hear that a lot. I I definitely would say it was. But, you know, the thing is, is like my mom, um, you know, she got her high school diploma. She never finished college. Um, and so while education was certainly a priority, you know, I, I really was like in the driver's seat, um, for most of my life growing up, like I really had to navigate it and figure it out, of course, with the, the, the support of my mom. And I was really, you know, fortunate. She's always someone who's in my corner, but, you know, she certainly couldn't just give me all the answers. And so, um, she always, you know, pushed me and, she knew what I was capable of and she was going to support whatever I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I was really lucky to have someone like her who, you know, while she couldn't give me all the answers, she always put me in a position so that uh, I could be successful and so that I could continue to have doors open for me. And, you know, I, I got a great education in the schools that I went to. Um, I was, you know, always educated in public schools. Um, but, you know, I was certainly in a district that um, is better off than a lot of areas of Alabama. And uh, she sacrificed to, you know, certainly make sure that we could live um, there and that I could attend those schools and everything. Um, and there were certainly other options. So I would, I would say it was definitely a priority. Dang, go mama, right? <laughs> That's so great to hear. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I was the youngest of five. Oh, wow. And I, I was, I'm also adopted. And so my, but my siblings never really had any, my parents didn't push them. And mm-hmm. so they didn't like, none of my siblings went to college. And so, and I was and so when I was in school, for some reason, they pushed me harder than the other kids. And so I, I'm pretty thankful for that. Uh-huh. But for, for some reason, I look back at my siblings. I'm like, why didn't they? Why didn't they push? They pushed me so damn hard. And I'm the baby. <laughs> I don't get this. No, you know, it, it's funny. I, I make fun of. Um, the youngest children a lot because obviously I have a lot of older child resentment um, (laughs) that is built up and my mom is also um, the youngest of a lot of children she's the youngest of 13 and then yeah and then I have one younger brother so I I feel like they have both a lot of younger children youngest children uh, tendencies and and, you know I have some issues with that but we won't go through this (laughs) today So when when did you actually get the like education bug? Like when did you want to get involved as an educator? You know, I really I wish that I had like a straightforward like it was kind of like a magical moment uh type story, but it didn't quite happen that way. Um Okay, that's cool. <laughs> 
I, you know, I, like I said, I, I grew up as a kid that was in a, in a household where we were certainly struggling. And I, you know, learned early on, like, what the reality of, like, living in poverty was like and trying to, you know, make it all happen and still, you know, get to school, get uniforms, get school supplies, be able to, you know, participate as any other kid and everything like that. So I very much grew up in that reality, but at the same time, you know, I was so focused on what was right in front of me, as, you know, most kids are. I was focused on, um, you know, getting through school and just trying to get to that next level. So I didn't think outside of my own bubble very much. And what I saw in my own experience was I was a kid who did not grow up um, with a lot of money or, you know, a lot of just resources um, handed to me. And yet I, you know, still was able to go to school and be successful and kind of, you know, have what I needed. And so in my mind growing up, that was true for most kids. And what happened was, is I went off to college. I went to Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, uh, War Eagle. Uh, and <laughs> I, uh, while I was there, I actually was forced to go to a panel on Teach for America. Uh, and oh, yeah, my orientation leader uh, forced me to go to this. I actually literally tried to get out of it. Um, <laughs> And I just didn't see the point of why I should be going to that. I didn't have an interest in being a teacher. You know, I was a political science major. Um, and I, you know, thought I would go to law school. And I really, really, I didn't have an interest in teaching or getting into, you know, education, really. But I went to that event, and it was just so eye-opening. And it, it really broke, you know, what I thought I knew, Um as I was explaining about like kids' opportunities in the education system. And I just remember like leaving that and having so many more questions. And I always, you know, I always say Google is everybody's friend. I like to remind everyone that it's free and always <laughs> accessible. As far as I know, I've never tried to go and it wasn't there. So Google, she's always there. And so <laughs> I like to use her, and I think, you know, she's a great resource, so I, I turned to Google, and uh, um, I, you know, started really doing a lot of the work, like, doing a lot of the research on, like, what education and equity looked like, and why I didn't get it, you know, even growing up in the circumstances that I did, like, why, you know, what, really, what my district was doing quite well was that they were making sure that education was an actual equalizer. You know, they were making sure that it didn't matter where their students were coming from, but that they got a high quality education the same as any of their peers. And so, um, you know, I, I have to kind of like unlearn what I already knew and then educate myself on really what the broader context and reality of education and equity looks like in this country. And you know, I guess I'm just the type of person that once I'm given uh, knowledge on something, once I'm given the, the facts and a clear picture, I can't let that go. I can't just ignore it or say, oh, well, that that was great. You know, I'm glad that I know this now. And, you know, I'm going to go back to my business over here. Like I had an immediate kind of desire, I guess you could say, from that point to stay involved, at least in um, the conversations around education. Um, in the, the state specifically, and there was a lot bubbling up at that time from the Alabama Accountability Act, which is a pretty significant uh, education law here. Um, 
you know, as well as things around our standards. There's a lot of, there have been a lot of attempts in the state of Alabama to repeal Common Core standards. Um, and I was also in a college town with one of the t- top uh, rated school districts in the state, you know, right out right there in the city. Um, and uh, next door to it, though, the, the, the school district that was literally neighboring um, Auburn's was, you know, not a successful district. They were struggling in many ways. And so as I also got more familiar with my community around my university, I started to see those, you know, um, those gaps. And I could see that, you know, there was just literally kids who lived a mile apart who had a completely different reality and a completely different opportunity handed to them when they walked in the doors of their school every day. I just couldn't, like, sleep with that, knowing that, you know, I felt compelled to do something and I wasn't. So that, I guess, would be kind of my education bug, but it was certainly something that evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it kind of has to evolve. And I I really uh, attach to what you were saying about when you learn, when you kind of like learn something new or even like unlearn something, it kind of takes a hold of you. Definitely. That's, that is kind of the story of why I got into like education in general. It was kind of the first time I, I learned what, um, like really learned about how, some of my friends were getting a different education at just a high school across town from me. Like kind of like what you're saying, but we live so close to each other and I would go visit their school just for like a, like a day or something. And it was like night and day, the types of treatment, the way students were being treated by teachers or by um, other students. And when I, would then come to my my high school, I'd be like, oh, it's completely different here. How is this happening in the same town? Exactly. What's exactly. going on? And it was, the fir- it was like the first time I ever started to like think about education. And I think h- high school is when I wanted to be a teacher. Mm. It's weird. Wow. And, you know, that's the thing is I think a lot of people don't know. I think, um, I mean – for most kids, how many of them spend very much time in other school buildings, right? And then I always say for adults, there's always, there's certainly a lot of opinions about education because most people, you know, in this country went to school and were educated um, here. And, you know, many of them have at least had interactions or time that they spent in public schools in the U.S. And so, you know, a lot of people feel a need to weigh in about, public education because everyone thinks that they know something on it, you know, but most people don't spend much time in school buildings. And so it kind of like you, yeah, you see a completely different world when you step into them and education is um, a line of work that is constantly evolving and changing rapidly. And, you know, we talk about tech and we talk about these other industries you know, whatever that, see that type of rapid innovation and growth. And like, we see this constant growth in education in terms of like, there's more and more kids coming into the education system. There are um, have more challenges and needs for kids than ever before and everything, but we aren't seeing the same level of innovation um, and the money and things like that to match and keep up with that. And so it's really interesting how that becomes quite apparent when you step into a school. <laughs> oh, for sure, especially our public schools. And I mean, I'm public school through and through every step of the way. 
And um, it's always funny to me that the folks who tend to have the biggest opinions about public school are those who've (laughs) never even stepped foot in one Mm. or send their kids to private schools. And I'm like, excuse me? I'm busting my ass every day, every step of the way through public school. And you haven't even, you, you probably can't even name one in your district. What are you, what right. are you doing? Right. And let me just, and I know, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this. Um, but I just want to dispose a myth, like right off the bat, that like private schools are automatically better than public schools. I mean, even yeah. in terms of academically, it just, that's simply not true. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, you know, um, private schools have their own challenges and struggles. And there's, there's a lot of also private schools that are doing great work for certain communities and everything like that. Um, or who've been started with a very specific purpose to combat some of the challenges that we do see in public education. But uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a myth that if you send your kids to private school, uh, especially in a city where the public school system is struggling, that automatically means they're going to get better. And that's not the case here in Montgomery, I can at least say. Oh, for sure. And uh, I so I want to go back a little bit to the Teach for America thing. So did you go through with Teach for America? So, uh, so uh, <laughs> interesting story. <laughs> um, so um, I did go through in terms of I went through the entire application process. I was accepted into Teach for America. Um, and that was my game plan. I was going into my senior year of college. I did an early deadline for Teach for America. Um, and my my idea was, you know, you know, I've now spent really most of my college experience really invested um, in, this, in, you know, education reform work. And um, I'd even, you know, worked with a national organization called Students for Education Reform when I was uh, in undergrad. And so that was something that had also kind of put me in more of those circles uh, and, and opened up a lot. Um, and so I was just kind of like, I think this is for me. Like, I think I need to get into the classroom and really see what this is all about. So that was my plan. And then I actually spent a summer in Montgomery uh, <laughs> just following I, my acceptance, like I started an internship here in Montgomery at the Montgomery Education Foundation, where I work now about a month after I was accepted to Teach for America. And I was still really enthusiastic about it and everything. But being here in the city for the summer and working with kids directly through, you know, my internship, getting to see the the behind the scenes work of working in a, you know, education nonprofit, uh, that was just kind of like, you know, that lit a fire under me and I was, I was doing my job, which was to be working directly with the kids and being in the classroom and supporting, you know, our teachers for our summer programs and things like that. But I also was finding myself outside of that a lot and (laughs) always trying to figure out like what our summer program directors were doing and what, you know, the full-time staff and everything was working on and what, you know, was coming down the pipeline in terms of, uh, you know, in the state house and everything like that for education. And so I, you know, um, I certainly believed and felt, you know, really strongly about Teach for America's mission. But I, uh, you know, I just kind of, I guess the education bug really bit me here. Um, And when the opportunity came up in the uh, final semester of 
my senior year of college, uh, I decided ultimately to take the job here and to not uh, pursue Teach for America. We're going to take a quick break from this conversation with Dylan just to bring you a quick ad talking about my friend Nevin Doyle and all the artwork and amazing design work that he does. Uh, If you go to his website, mishko.co, M-I-S-H-K-O dot co, C-O, you can see so much expansive artwork that will blow your mind. Um, He's been creating artwork for about seven years now. Um, Back uh, about uh, six years ago, I was his high school teacher in Philomath, Oregon, and I had no idea he had these designs, these ideas in his brain. And you'll see some dazzling uh, illustrations and otherworldly designs that will make you want to hire him right now because you can you can hire him right now to make an album artwork for you to make any sort of uh, merchandise design maybe your university wants some cool hip new designs for uh, students to wear around your campus Uh, reach out to nevin he'll even make some videos for you he makes music as well go to his website mi S-H-K-O dot co, Mishko dot co. Reach out to him and get some sweet designs made. He did the coloration and art design, art direction for my last EP. He's been doing artwork for Pray for Sound. He did the new artwork for uh, This Patch of Sky, which you're hearing on this episode today. Uh, He's just, he's blowing up making some amazing artwork, getting a lot of attention, and make sure that you go check him out right now. Right now! M-I-S-H-K-O dot co. Mishko dot co. Nevin Doyle. He's the future of design in one person. And now back to the conversation with Dylan Nettles. Tell me about the Montgomery Education Foundation and when did you first get involved with it? You got into a little bit about it, but I want to hear a little bit more. Right. So uh, the Montgomery Education Foundation is a nonprofit organization, of course, here in Montgomery, Alabama. And our primary goal is to ensure that every child in Montgomery has access to a high quality public education. Um, Of course, you will note that I put extra emphasis on high quality um, because we don't want to send kids any longer to schools that continue to disenfranchise them, continue to not give them the tools that they need to be successful. And unfortunately, that for um, quite some time has been the reality in Montgomery. Um, I first got involved here, as I mentioned earlier, as an intern during the summer of that had been 2014, um, just before my senior year of college and then I returned here uh, about summer, yeah, it was summer 2015, right? About two weeks after my college graduation, I started um, here as the community programs director. Cool, now what what factor, if any, does race come into the work that you do uh, with MEF? Ooh. <laughs> um, 
every day. Every it's, okay. it's, a, it's a factor in every single way and every decision. Um, and that's something that we are actually really intentional as a staff about putting on the forefront. The reality is, is that this is still a segregated system and that the majority of schools in this school district of 30,000 students are um, African-American. They're black kids. They look like me. They um, are, you know, we've shared many of the same experiences, I'm sure, growing up. And uh, um, I, of course, have a certain uh, empathy for that as a black man. But, you know, my, our staff is not all black. And uh, we make it a point to make sure that we are making uh, those considerations of the, yeah, the challenges of being black in America and growing up in a broken school district and living in a high poverty area, we just simply can't overlook those things. And so, um, you know, we talk about it every day and what specifically we have to do for black kids in this community. Hmm. Dang. Now what, now you, you mentioned that the school districts are still segregated. What does that type of segregation look like in your experience? It feels yeah. like a modern form of segregation. It is truly is modern segregation. And, um, well, what it looks like currently in Alabama, um, and it, well, in Montgomery, but this is true for many places in Alabama, I'm sure across the deep South. I mean, um, you know, if you drive by um, in Montgomery, a private school, um, especially those that are, are you know most notable uh, in the community, a majority of them, I can almost guarantee you, will have um, just beneath their name on the sign in front of their school, founded in 1955, 56, 57. Why? Because Brown v. Board of Education came to the Supreme Court in 1954. So. Once that decision was rendered, you could see almost immediately these schools began to open and, you know, white families in the South began to flood these schools with their children and to take them out of public schools. Uh, and, uh, you know, for a long time, at least in Montgomery, it wasn't that, you know, if you were white, everybody went to private school. Um, but that's been become quite the case, unfortunately, here. Um the public school system uh, has become, I, I, I believe it's over 70% um, Black. Uh, if you look at any of our schools that, you know, are identified as quote-unquote failing schools, and I am iffy about using that term, but that's actually a legal term that Alabama uh, designates those schools that fall below a certain performance level as. Um, you know, if you look at those schools, they're a majority of black, I believe, um, on last year's uh, failing schools list that the state department actually puts out um, across the state. There were 37,000 kids identified as being students enrolled at a, a failing school and 34,000 of them across the state were black, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, what it looks like is our schools are that are, are struggling, where our teachers are, are struggling, where our school leaders are struggling and are being unsupported are, are the schools where also, it just so happens, mostly black kids go there. And as we know, I should not say this just so happens, but as we know, that's not a, just a coincidence. Um, you know, and there's been 
um, obviously a long history across the South and in Alabama of, of, of racial strife. And um, unfortunately, the education system, while many things have, have grown and fortunately modernized, uh, the education system simply hasn't. The, the conversations with the transparency uh, that they need have not been taking place um, in order to to make the changes that are going to be necessary in order to, you know, have white families reinvest in the public education system in order to see those kids, you know, regardless of white families reinvest or not, get what they need. Um, and I, you know, I just strongly believe that we have to, as an organization, you know, continue to put ourselves out there um, and be a part of those conversations and speak some hard truths. Um and what do, do those look like? What do those conversations look like? Um, well, I so I specifically, I should mention, I specifically do uh, community engagement work for okay. the Education Foundation. Um, and, you know, we are trying really hard. I can only speak for, you know, our, our efforts. Um, we're trying really hard to create spaces for um, our, our, well, all of our community members um, but especially those parents and those families that are in these schools that are struggling to to actually drive the dialogue themselves. And I think, you know, oftentimes what is looked like here is, you know, people who have a level of self-interest or people who are maybe come from political backgrounds, things like that, trying to drive the conversation in whatever direction they need to go. Uh, rather than the community really being able to drive the conversation and identify what they want for their kids, um, their black kids. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, um, uh, one of the things that we've worked on a lot uh, in these last two years that I've been there is like, what does that space look like? And uh, so we, we have these events, we call them network nights, and it's actually an opportunity for the community to come out. We invite all stakeholders from, you know, parents, the educators in the school, school leadership, also those local politicians uh, and, um, you know, local business people, whoever we can find to come in. But we're having a conversation that's going to take place where everybody's on the same uh uh, on the same playing field. We're not doing this, you know, you're an authority figure or you're in this position, so you're going to tell me what you think is best. And they're really transparent and we're kind of pulling back um, what have been kind of like these guardrails that are put up in these like town hall meetings and letting people just go right at it. Um, and so, you know, we've had conversations, for example, about this uh, Montgomery Public Schools is currently under a state intervention. And we're having conversations about if we're uh, about the race, uh, about the topic of race and huh. how out in this school, because the hope would be that as this um, intervention continues, that like we're going to obviously start to see um, changes in how diverse our, our schools are, why, you know, the, the most challenged schools, the quote unquote failing schools don't have magnet programs, why those kids are automatically counted out. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, much of the community has been waiting for that opportunity, but the avenue has never really been provided for them. And so we have an opportunity to really do that and to kind of like, you know, just put it out there and let people 
it's, it's they're having these conversations at home, they're having them with their neighbors, but they're not getting the, the FaceTime and to talk about it with the, you know, the people who are decision makers. Um, and educators are seeing this every day play out and they're not getting a chance to talk about it with people outside of their building. They're not getting a chance to engage with the community and give them a real idea of what's also happening for, once again, their black kids. And so yeah. um, we're, we're educating, we're giving people, you know, knowledge about what school looks like right now in Montgomery, what the realities of it are, while also giving, you know, uh, parents and families the opportunity to engage with their, their public officials um, in a very casual way that they haven't. Um, and so that's, that's just a piece of it. But yeah, that's our attempt to try to provide a space for these conversations to take form in whatever form they need to. What kinds of responses have you been getting from, I guess, and what what kind of responses have you been getting and what is the different types of responses you get depending on like a white family or a black mm. family you talk to? What does that look like? Mm. So I'm like trying to put it together in my head. You know, I'll say this. I was at an event uh this was almost, uh, yeah, this was earlier this year. It's top of the year. And um, this was this was that this was an event that we, I, I can't say hosted, but we played a role in facilitating like a conversation. And, and one of the comments when we got to the topic of, of race and how it's playing out in the school district that I found to be interesting was uh, there was a, a probably you know, middle-aged 40-something-year-old white man who he had a lot of feelings about the direction of public education and he had a lot of feelings about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, he would never keep his kids away from the public schools because of, of race and he would never, uh, you know, count a kid out because of how they, how they look and the color of their skin and anything like that. But when it got time to talk about action, and what he could do about it, even if he didn't want to send his kids to that school, or even if he wasn't ready to say, pay, uh, or, or vote for um, a tax hike, or whatever, for funding for public education. When it came to just being a concerned citizen and stepping into the building, his, um, his answer was that it wasn't his responsibility, and that uh, the that these kids are that that's what their parents should be doing for them. And that's what uh, their teachers are there for. And okay. <laughs> that was really eye opening for me, obviously also quite maddening, but <laughs> yeah, eye opening for me because what that meant to me was, is that I'm willing to point the finger at all the problems all day. And I'm willing to tell you what, how all these things that these kids need, but I, as a person of, immense privilege and as uh, someone with possibly even the resources and opportunities to make a difference, whatever, don't feel that these kids, these people are worth that. That's maybe I, you know, there may be people listening to this who feel like that's, you know, wow, you really took it to a whole nother level. But <laughs> that's what I hear as a black man with, and hearing this man tell me that these kids, essentially, or whatever, are not worth his time. Um, I mean, as a white dude, I hear it that way, too. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, if I were, I don't know how I would respond in a, in a, in a town, in a situation like that. I would, I would have a hard time just like not sending him like, excuse, 
excuse me, sir? Right, right. What do you and, mean? You know, that was, yeah, that was definitely a challenge that day. And, you know, we have a motto at uh, MEF, the, you know, the Education Foundation, um, that's simple. It's just our kids can. And, oh, but good. it's strategic because what we have to do is a lot of stigma fighting in our work here. Um, and all of, like, once again, most of our work here is, is um, in an effort to provide program services to, you know, mostly black kids. And, um, you know, we're constantly trying to show through the work that our kids produce in our programs, um, through even, you know, those community engagement events where we have all these parents and families, grandparents, and everyone show up, um, that our kids, our family, our communities can do this, like that we are you know, capable of turning the system around and that there are people who are already doing the work, of course, but also so many more who are willing to show up if they're given the opportunity, the support and the tools that they need to be successful. Um, What we know to be true is that our kids here simply have not been getting those opportunities. They simply have not had the supports and the tools to be successful. Um, That's also honestly probably true for our teachers until that changes you can't point the finger and just say these kids won't learn or they're not going to care about this or wow that's a great really innovative idea that might push the districts but our kids and our families won't buy into that and we're constantly trying to fight those stigmas and actually show otherwise hmm dang sounds like y'all are just on top of so many things <laughs> you know we're really good at talking about it <laughs> <laughs> well and i'm sure you get to you get to experience a lot of um different types of resilience in your students as well um what are do you have any like good s- stories of resilience you would like share like to share with folks about some of the students you work with or even some of the some of the colleagues you work with as well uh well I will say this, these kids have seen and experienced things and, you know, some of them, I, you know, I know 9, 10, 11 year olds here that participate in our programs and stuff who have seen experience more than I have as someone who is coming up on 25. Um, and, and I explained earlier, like, I didn't have a peachy childhood, but uh, these kids, because of you know, a lot of challenges in this community right now. We've had a lot of violence, a lot of gun deaths, things like that. Of young, young people, I'm talking kids um, that are, are, you know, are, are little. Uh, they, these are their classmates and these are their neighbors and their friends. And, you know, they um, have been put in some situations where they have to really be adults. And I hate that, but you know, they still have to come to school and be focused and they still have to, you know, some of them carry so many responsibilities in their own households for their younger siblings and all those things. So, you know, um, they're they're just, they're all incredible. And I've seen so many countless um, kids over the past few years and stuff like that just come in and be the very definition of resilient. Uh, And I mean, I guess like one example I'll talk about is, you know, we had a student who participated for a few years in one of our summer programs who, um, you know, she came in 
her first summer with us and I had no idea, but um, she had lost her mom only a couple months prior and had to completely, her mom passed away suddenly and she had to completely have her life uprooted to come here and live with her aunt. And uh, this girl was incredible. I mean, she, um, she, she has this huge smile and she's quiet, but she's so loving. And she wouldn't, I've never seen her um, be mean or hurtful or even just doing the typical kid stuff to another person. I mean, she's just someone who, you know, just already kind of had this wisdom about herself. And like, you know, she's still, she was going through it at that time and we had to work through some stuff. But like the fact that she got through that summer and she's, um, you know, I talked to her, her aunt frequently I guess you could say and she um you know she has really just hung in there and I talked about my mom earlier I'm not sure if I could do it and um I'm just incredibly proud of her and now seeing her now this has been I guess I just saw her this summer so it's been two summers later and she is just still thriving and she's going to middle school um actually she would have just started middle school last week and that just blows my mind. Um, and my colleagues too, they've seen so much. I've had colleagues who've lost, who've lost students. Um, like I mentioned, you know, we've had a lot of gun violence here recently. And even this summer we had, uh, had a colleague who lost um, one of her former students who was only nine years old because he was shot. And oh. yeah, and um, he, yeah, he was shot and killed at nine. And she came into work the next day. Gosh. And, and uh, she taught those other, you know, 18 kids that she has with her in our summer program. And I don't think that they ever knew it, but we knew what she was emotionally, mentally um, having to experience. And it just, it's unfathomable. Um, but that's resilience. That's, you know, She's a magical educator. We knew that about her. Um, yeah, yeah. You don't always have to be, <laughs> in you know, and but yeah, what she what she did um, to come back, you know, after something like that, and to still be so focused and determined uh, to make sure that these kids who are enrolled in a summer program that's all about getting them, you know, the opportunity to be exposed to new things and to catch up you know, from, you know, a lot of them are behind and struggling, but to catch up and to, you know, go into the next year stronger, that was her mission. And she like never steered away from that. And I just was amazed. That's so incredible. Mm -hmm. Goodness. And getting to hear you, you talk about the work that you're doing. It's, and I've only been to the South to New Orleans and I was only just recently in Orlando. So like, I don't feel like I've had a lot of experience of the South. Right, so what, right. you, what you're giving me is a taste that I, I really, I've never experienced and, and something I've never truly understood. And I, I did grow up with a mother from Arkansas, but <laughs> she experienced the Bro Brown V board of education stuff in a different way wow. as as a little white girl uh, with parents who weren't the most understanding, if you could imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and so she has a different retelling of it. And it's wonderful hearing um, 
the type of work that is getting done to still, still try to undo some of the bullshit that has been persisting for, what, 60, 70, 80, hundreds of years in the South. Yeah, and I'll, I'll say this about Southerners, um, and obviously this isn't true for all of us, but I think that it's, it, there is a significant uh, portion of us that are so dedicated to this being more than our history, Mm-hmm. Um, and who like are just ripples of those change makers um, that are in our you know our history textbooks you know um, and you know that's that that history um, of activism here and that history of of you know pushing up against the system and uh, you know continuing to demand 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 until of the people really get what they want and deserve, that is still, like, pumping through a lot of people here. That's still so much a part of, like, who we are. Um, and, you know, that's, the teacher I just spoke about is a great example of that, but there's so many more, so many more. All right, now is time for the music break of the podcast. Today I am playing you the song Bella Muerte from the band This Patch of Sky back home in Oregon, where I'm from. These folks have been making post-rock instrumental tunes for a bunch of years now. They've put out a few great albums already, and this next one is going to be released by Equal Vision Records and Graphic Nature Records. Really excited for this album. It's due out on September 22nd. It has some amazing artwork, some amazing visuals. I'm going to link you uh, to one of their videos in the podcast notes. But please, 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 if you do want to listen to more This Patch of Sky, find them on Spotify, find them on Bandcamp. You can also go to their website, thispatchofskymusic.com. And if you're in the New England area, they're going to be doing a stretch of shows uh, around the New England area and New York and I think Philly at the beginning of October when they play Dunkfest in Burlington, Vermont. I will be there all weekend. It is going to be so much fun. Uh, Go to their website. Again, you can find out how to get tickets to that festival. You can get uh, CD, vinyl, digital so you can have this album in your ears in your home or in your car however you listen to music however you ingest it and for now i i welcome you to ingest it here on this podcast here is bella muerte by this patch of sky
was Bella Muerte by This Patch of Sky. If you want to hear more, please pre-order their new album, These Small Spaces, at thispatchofskymusic.com. They're amazing. Cannot wait for that album. All right, let's finish this conversation with Dylan Nettles. We originally planned this conversation to have this conversation last week mm-hmm. when... Um, but then uh, it kind of fell through for both of us schedule stuff. And then I went off to Montreal this weekend. And while I was out of the States, all hell broke loose in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I had honestly no real idea what was going on unless I checked social media and it was a mess. It was some of the most racist, blatant, ignorant display I've seen in my lifetime mm-hmm. and stuff that I, 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 I don't even know how folks in the States were reacting to it. I know that you wrote a piece about what happened this weekend in Charlottesville. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that went down. I'm not honestly looking for you to be an expert uh, uh, at all, <laughs> but being someone in the South who likely experiences a lot of um, different types of racial uh, uh, aggressions, microaggressions, macroaggressions, I'm sure you have a lot to add to this. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Well, of course, the events were really tragic, and it was incredibly hurtful to also, you know, I hop on Twitter, and I just started strolling um, through my feed, and what was there? Literally, I'm I'm, I'm just, like, sitting there going down Twitter, like, okay, and there are white men and women carrying torches Mm -hmm. just in the street, like, what? With their faces (laughs) exposed. Right. Confidently... They're confident. That in of itself, right. That in of itself says so much, right? Like you feel that sense of security that you are out here literally fighting against everything that I stand for and that I am. I mean, truly everything that I represent is in opposition to your belief system. And uh, you are just putting it out there and and in such a hateful way. Um, and, uh, you know... I'm, I get the whole freedom of speech arguments or whatever. I, I, you know, I took a few classes in constitutional law myself, but <laughs> what I do know um, is that what, what they were doing is indefensible and like, and that to me is un-American. And what my piece actually really focused on though was showing that while I, I don't feel that that should be, the values that we stand for um, as a country now, that doesn't mean that it hasn't been for a long time. Um, It has been, in fact, pretty much the whole time. And, um, you know, I think what has certainly evolved, um, especially in recent years, is, you know, we're having a broader conversation, a broader, like, dialogue across communities about, uh, race in this country, um, and and I and I'm happy to see that the response, um, you know, from my community and with with you know Black Lives Matter and and you know with, with how Ferguson really kicked off um, a powerful movement, a real revolution 
I really have been incredibly proud to see my community out there at the forefront of that and, and fighting for our own lives, fighting for the lives of, of future generations and things like that, of, of black and brown kids who just deserve better than this this system that we continue to be thrown into and an education system too, as we talked about earlier, that isn't serving them. But, um, and, you know, just frankly, um, law enforcement and even government that, that doesn't value them, that doesn't seek to preserve their life. And what I wanted those to focus on um, in my piece was also as moving beyond um, first of all, the naivety of, of oh, yeah, this is, this is not us. I saw that hashtag circulating around. This is not us. This isn't the country that we are and everything like that. But history tells us that actually it is. And um, Oh, most that, definitely. Yeah, exactly. And like I that, hadn't actually, I didn't actually see that hashtag. I, I, yeah, I might actually yeah. have to look I, into that. You know, I actually think um, I, I think the first person I saw tweet it was Lady Gaga, which oh, you know we're we're cool. I mean, me and Stephanie don't have any problems, <laughs> but, but I yeah I I mean I think that there needs to be a conversation about that because I mean, we have to first of all grapple with the reality of of what this country has done to people of color. Um, systemically, we're still still going through so much because of of um, how black people were brought to this country because of the fact that we were enslaved for still a majority of this nation's history. And we have, of course, m- maybe moved beyond our physical bondage, but we have not uh, systemically evolved. We have not uh, been granted the equal protections and um, and even... <laughs> We, ha- we haven't even been granted what, you know, many people would call the reparations. <laughs> uh, yeah. Shout out to ta <laughs> yeah. Shout out to ta on that one. Um, but we haven't even been granted that. And uh, I-, I think that first we have to start with just acknowledging uh, what it means to be Black in this country. And then we have to also talk about, though, that Black people are not the only ones who, who have to, no pun intended, carry the torch. Um, on our end, um, we also have to, we will, yes, we will need um, our white counterparts to stand alongside us. Um, and, and sometimes, yes, actually even in front of us, because to be honest, like I'm kind of tired of seeing us just being pushed out onto the front line and say, hey, you go fight for this for your community. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who, who are quick to say, well, I'm not racist and I stand for black lives or I'm an ally and all those things, but I don't see you at the protest, girl. Yeah. I don't see, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't see, you know, or whatever. Like, are, are you, how outspoken are you being like when you're not with me, but you're back at home with, you know, your racist uncle or mm-hmm. our granddad or, or, or mom, you know, like when we need you to be a voice in the spaces that we can't be, or, and honestly, even the spaces that we may have to, that it may be dangerous for us to be, like, that's what we need you to show up. Yeah. Um, and so that, that was kind of the focus of my piece is like, let's drop this hashtag, this is not us, let's like, stop pretending that this isn't the America that it, that it always has been. And, 
and like let's acknowledge that so that we can really start talking about what moving forward looks like and what this uh, growing movement uh, will look like in terms of the people who are going to be involved with it. Dang, yeah. I love that, and I, I love how much more depth you get into in the piece. I'm going to link it in the in the show notes of this episode so folks can read it. Um, now, before I transition to the last question, um, what's next for you? Uh, professionally, more school, any big future plans? What you, what you got on, on the horizon? This is the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what is next for me? Um, you know, right now I'm so, I mean, work is in general pretty crazy. So, <laughs> but, but truly, I mean, I'm, I'm really focused and as passionate as my guy here about the challenges of especially black kids who are just not getting the shot that they deserve in their education system. Uh, wherever I go from here here, whether it be, uh, you know, me continuing to work in Montgomery, another part of the state, another, you know, part of the country or whatever, that will, I think, always be at the forefront. Um, but I, I do want to say, I think, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I do feel particularly compelled um, to do this work to, you know, to do this education reform work to continue to organize uh, here in the South. I, I think, you know, that there aren't a lot of millennials uh, who are staying here right now, and we're so needed. <laughs> we are mm -hmm. so needed. I mean, when I go to meetings, um, I'm oftentimes one of the youngest people in the room, and these are, you know, including public forums. If I go to the school board, if I go to city council, if I go to the state house, you know, I don't see other people who are my age. And, you know, our voice isn't being represented, and that's reflected in the decision-making that's happening all across uh, the South. Um, and so we have to, like, you know, we're, we're, we're so necessary now more than ever. So that's, that's something that, um, I'm definitely thinking a lot about. I'm trying to think about, you know, like how do I also, um, we talked a lot of earlier about stigmas and like, how do I also paint a very different picture of what the South is and tell also, our story and our history of activism here um, and that it is a place that still, yes, there are progressive minded people here. There are people who are doing things that are unimaginable and have been doing it with little to nothing because of where we are and because they don't have a lot of support from the community. Um, you know, there's, we just opened a, um, a, something called the Bay at Ruston Community Center here or whatever, um, it's, which is, um, you know, the woman who started it, she uh, is doing this pretty much on her own, um, funding it. You know, she has, she's always looking for volunteers. She does yard sales and all these things. But this is truly a safe space that she's created for uh, LGBTQ youth in a place like Montgomery, Alabama. You know, um, there is um, a woman here named Mia Raven who has um, a, something called the Powerhouse, which is a house that's next door to um, a reproductive services clinic where women, you know, can uh, have an abortion. And she, you know, in Alabama, we hear, I, I believe we have a, um, someone's probably going to correct me on this, but it's either a 24 or 48 hour hold uh, for women to actually have the procedure 
and so, you know, they have to come, they have to initially go for the screening, and then they have to wait to actually have the procedure. And she has, you know, purchased and um, opened this house that's literally next door to the clinic um, so that they have a safe space as well so that they don't have to worry about a hotel or childcare or, you know, things like that because there are so few clinics. These women are often traveling, from, you know, long distances and things like that to, to come and have the procedure. And so those are you know, people who are doing radical work and who are honestly putting themselves in a place like Alabama, sometimes at risk. Uh, and nobody, a lot of people don't know their stories. And a lot of people don't know that they're here. Um, and there's so many more who are out here being those, you know, champions for these rights, I mean, yeah. for these rights. And so I want to also my work, um, whether it be, you know, my writing for our blog, theforestsouth.com, um or for, forward south as in f-o-r-e w-o-r-d yes w-o-r-d um, south.com people we'll, who i mentioned have actually been featured on there we'll link um, it up we'll link it up appreciate that uh but yeah that we're telling a lot of stories on there actually of the um of the progressive work that people are doing all across the deep south because you know we believe in um we believe in what people here are capable of. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a son of the state, you know, I'm someone who grew up here and I learned everything I knew here. So I, I, you know, I'm open to more people coming in and influencing it who didn't grow up here. And I'm also, you know, really thinking about finding ways to continue to uh, have people really think about staying and doing this work and joining me and my friends and so many other great people. So I don't know what's next, but I, that's kind of where I think my focus and priorities lie right now. It sounds like you're involved with some great folks. And I mean, if you're comfortable where you are, man, more power to you. That's <laughs> awesome. Now to wrap it up, what, where do you, and we've touched on this a little bit, might not have even much more to add, but where do you feel we do go in terms of um, like challenging systemic racism in the educational system, especially from the South? And then what what could I even learn to impart on my campus that is 70 percent students of color in mm. Boston? So um, I, I'd love to hear anything you have. Ooh, that's a, such a big question. You know, it always I, is to end it. <laughs> People, you know, I think most people would agree that education just is a key. It op it opens so many doors that, you know, that was true for me and my experience growing up. I, the first time, I the first time I think I left um, the state of Alabama to truly travel, it wasn't because my family could afford to. It was because I went for school. Um, you know, it was because someone probably honestly actually gave me a scholarship where I had a teacher who was kind enough to say, mm, we won't charge you, you know, because, and that happened. Um, but you know, I had, I got on a plane for the first time, um, in college because, uh, my school was sending me to DC. Um, like, you know, I, um, I've met and made so many connections and made so many friends because of um, my education. And so we know that, you know, for many people, for especially people of color, it's the key to, you know, breaking a cycle of poverty and opening so many 
the worst that may otherwise have never been there. But I think we need real reform. I think we have to really start using the word reform a lot more often. People here, I, I remember someone telling me that they're like, don't use that word here. It makes people nervous. And I was like, well, even, <laughs> even, um, but, and, and that just means like, I think we have to start talking about like, what do our schools look like in 2017 and beyond? Like, are our classrooms, our schools inclusive? And is our instruction uh, thoughtful about you know the perspectives, the challenges, and even the unique talents that us, uh, you know that students of color bear. Um, and I, you know, I want our schools. I'm a true believer in our schools have to be hubs for the community. Um, I think our schools should be spaces for you know great high quality instruction and for teachers to really flex their muscles and thrive with their kids and stuff and for the kids to explore uh and have that kind of self-determination in their education but beyond that you know i think that um they should be the school should be centers for for services um for you know where the entire family feels connected they feel invested in the interests of that school because it's more than just where they send their kids um, for eight hours of the day, but it's also open and available to them. It's where they can go and apply for jobs and where they can go and possibly do their laundry and like where they, um, you know, they feel that it's open and judgment free and the, the resources and development that they need, even, you know, as parents, as adults, as guardians, like, you know, that they can find that as well in that space. Um, and I think when that starts to happen, I think that it'll be quite transformative because I think that um, we'll rec recognize um, that school isn't just kind of like this construct where, you know, oh, well, everyone has to go to school and then you just kind of go through the, the, the flow of it and everything you graduate and go on like I think that's like people don't really think about school beyond that or whatever I think you know when it becomes an intersection for so many different services and so many different needs for the community then people start to go that building that's important that building how it looks what uh, what's in it what people provide it when they go there and everything it, it should matter to all of us and we have to protect that. So, um, that, you know, that's, that's kind of where I think we go. That's where I hope we go, um, from here. Yeah. I love, I love that. I love the idea of a school as a community. I'm a big, um, in being a, a, a big mutualist anarchist, I'm a big <laughs> fan of, I'm a big fan of communities taking care of each other loving each other so that we can we can we can pull each other up and 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 showcase each other and i think that that's a huge thing i wish if if more schools and if more administrators um and even faculty members and students viewed it as that not even in like a uh uh fluffy uh rainbows and glitter and sunshine right. community way but in more of a we also challenge each other we yeah. also go through some stuff together i i think that's super important i and love that sorry i mean to cut you off oh um, no but i wanted to say I'm, I'm sure you know you've talked to even your students about this and everything but i think you know one thing that they should really know is that 
uh, of course, in communities, everyone has a role to play. Um, it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that you know you can do everything for a kid or everything from a teacher. But what I think we're learning also right now in education is that it's going to take people from so many different disciplines and so many different backgrounds to really affect education and to really move it to where it needs to go. And like I talked about earlier that education right now is really in deep, deep need of that innovation that we see in say like the tech industry. And so imagine people coming from across those sectors, coming from a business background, coming from tech, coming from, um, you know, human services work and things like that. And, you know, starting to think about what education reform work will look like and, you know, their career path. And like people would go, well, what does that have to do with me as like a finance person? You know what I'm saying? Well, our schools need funding. Like they need them bad. Teachers need grants, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It's all connected. It really is. It's all connected. And everyone at the end of the day, the success of our kids uh, in these schools and everything will ultimately be, you know, what sustains, you know, what our vision of at least what we want um, this country to be. Uh, And so, yeah, so everyone's got to be at the table. Ah, I love it. Love that. Okay, we're going to end with the lightning round. Some fun stuff yeah. to close this out. Okay. Hey. All right, so there's seven things. Just quick, off the top of your head, Ooh. whatever comes to you. Oh, God, that makes me nervous, actually. Cause <laughs> <laughs> we'll start off light. Favorite color? Green. Okay, great. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Favorite food? Uh, shrimp. Oh, shrimp. Do you have a specific style? No, I'm just, I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico. Seafood is life. (laughs) You're speaking to my heart. All right. uh, Favorite reality TV show? Ooh, I'm probably going to say it changes, but first thing popped into my head was Real Housewives of Atlanta. (laughs) Yeah, that's, ooh, I'm probably, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go with that one. All right. (laughs) (laughs) i dig it all right um favorite book all time oh my gosh oh man um favorite book of all time i read i know why the cage first things when i was in like the sixth grade i don't know necessarily that it's my favorite ever but it was so impactful it literally like i would say it's the book that changed my life favorite movie current and all time if you're a movie person Ooh, i would say my favorite movie of all time is bad boys 2 nice (laughs) oh my gosh um currently i just saw girls trip a couple weeks ago i think it deserves an oscar i'm gonna put it on the record like i I want it to get a best picture nomination (laughs) (laughs) i do like i want to see like up there like you know um Meryl Streep's latest film, and then like Tiffany Haddish and Girl Strip. That's what I want. Yeah, that would be <laughs> so amazing. <laughs> it would be incredible. Okay, uh, two two more favorite music album of all time and or current. Ooh, um, favorite music album of all time is gonna. I'm gonna go with Four by Beyonce. Okay. Currently, um. Uh, right now, what have I been listening to? Um, 
Well, I can't say. I don't know. I feel like I haven't been listening to a lot of albums. Uh, well, Control by SZA. I really. Oh, love. that's a good one. That's like I'm really in love with that. I will also say this is super an album, chill. Bodak Yellow, Cardi B, definitely, definitely at the top of my list right now as well. Nice. So. Okay, last one, and this might be the deal breaker of the entire show. Favorite Beyonce song? Oh, oh my gosh. Um, count, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say Countdown. Countdown, okay, all right. Which is on four, of course, so. I wanted to to make sure I could get some Beyonce on this punk podcast. Yeah. So I could appease a segment of my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get some hate mail. I'm sure. Some of oh no, you're young. good. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dylan. Thank you so much for spending some time with me tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving me your time and letting me have this platform. And you know, just even the work that you're doing. I listened to a few episodes. I think it's awesome what you're doing. So, oh, thanks so much. Uh, we did it. We got through another episode episode 10 this was the 10th episode wow these just keep flying by but what an educational experience today's episode was i learned so much from dylan so much about how segregation still exists in the south absolutely mind-blowing some of the stuff that he shared with me today uh i'm 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 just in awe and inspired by the work that he does um, with so many young students uh, in in Alabama, and I cannot uh, do anything but wish him and the Montgomery Education Foundation the best as they move forward. So if you want to learn more about them, check out the show notes. If you want to check out more about this patch of sky uh, follow them on all forms of social media, on Spotify, on Bandcamp. Get their new album, These Small Spaces, out on September 22nd through Equal Vision Records. Uh, their music is absolutely beautiful. And please check out my the artwork of my buddy Nevin Doyle at mishko.co, M-I-S-H-K-O.co. Nevin is one of the smartest, most creative human beings I know, and I uh, am absolutely inspired by all of the art that he creates. So please uh, reach out to him if you need any design work done. And yeah, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please tell a friend, please share it, please uh, rate and review it in the iTunes store. Uh, if you're on Pocket Cast, I hope you're enjoying it as well. And if you're on my website, craigbiteman.com, hell yeah. Thanks for giving me some clicks. That's really great. And if you want to follow me on social media, it's a misspelling of my name. It's at Craig Bidman. C-R-I-G-B-I-D-I-D-M-A-N. If you would like me to come speak to your campus, you can check out more information at craigbiteman.com slash speaker. I would love to fill up my fall with more speaking engagements. I think I'm up to five now. So if you want me to come talk to your students about mental health stuff, sexual health stuff, authenticity, leadership, all those fun things, book me. It would be pretty sweet. It's the first time I've done... uh, plug for myself but here we are all right well thanks for listening and i'm gonna leave you with some dispatch this guy again and yeah see you next week let's get to work